0: Brilliant! Happy birthday Glasgow Grace! (laughs) If you don't know who I am, my name's Ian and it's such a thrill for me that I get to say that to you five years in because what we are looking to do here is not build anyone's church except Jesus' church and that means it's also your church because you have been wrapped up in his purposes as part of one of his local churches as he looks to transform the world through it. Isn't that wonderful? So thank you. If you're here for the first time today and you're like, man, what are all these celebrations about? And what is all that technical stuff about? Well, um, we are so glad you're here. We mostly don't have that technical stuff going on. And we mostly don't have parties happening every week. But we do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single Sunday. Because he is alive and he is doing things. And he is ready to do things with you. So welcome. Well, it's safe to say that in Glasgow, some of you will have watched King Charles' coronation with some keen interest. Some of you will have avoided it at all costs, and some of you will have watched it while hating it, even though you really didn't want to watch it, and you sure would have commented about every single part of it that you didn't like. Whatever your view, there's no denying. It was lavish, grand. Operation Golden Orb had been in the planning for decades. It was top secret. Apparently, it's not the done thing to talk about the next king or the next queen while the other one is still reigning. The operation was named after the hollow golden ball right at the centre of the crown jewels to be placed on King Charles III's head. Appropriate, really, because the whole thing, according to Time magazine, cost the taxpayer, that's most of you, you ready for it? £100 million. The procession, filled with pomp and circumstance, involved hundreds of soldiers, dozens of horses, lavishly designed carriages and costumes, brass bands, percussionists, pipers, and it was planned for years. Thousands lined the streets. 20 million people in the UK watched it all at one time. That was a peak TV audience. And millions more watched it around the world. That's the kind of procession that you might expect for a royal coronation. The golden orb, by the way, uh, is supposed to symbolise Christ's authority. Ironic, really, when you compare it to the triumphal entry we have just heard about in John chapter 12. Jesus' procession begins not with military knights or with lavish riches, but acquiring a solitary, humble donkey. What kind of king is this? How's he going to establish his kingdom with a donkey and some rowdy followers? What will his kingdom possibly be like? Word got out that Jesus was on his way. I expect most folded their arms and said, We'll see. Many, probably thousands, decided they would grab palm leaves from trees and from the top of makeshift tents that would have been there during the festival. And they got to him and waved their palms furiously in the air, laid some in his path. And now, we need to get something straight here, okay? This crowd, mostly Galileans, some of them from around Jerusalem who have believed when they heard the story about Lazarus, have come to make a bold statement about who Jesus is. They are not the same crowd who denies Jesus in Jerusalem. There's very little evidence for that. It sounds great in a sermon, but it's probably not true. That was most likely people from Jerusalem and Judea who would have been cajoled to be there by the religious elites. It's not likely to be the Galileans. It's not likely to be those who believe in this moment suddenly changing their minds. These are the humble, the poor, and they've come to see their humble king. When we get to chapter uh, chapter 1, we've been there. When we get to chapter 21, we're going to see that John says that the reason that these people are following him Jesus, all these Galileans who have seen miracle after miracle and heard sermon after sermon, the reason they're following him is because there are so many miracles, so many stories of what Jesus was doing that you could not contain them in all the books in the world. The crowd that calls for his death and Barabbas' release have not been around that have not been following Jesus through that time, in the months that precede this, the people that we've been following. When people grab those palms, they actually are are making a huge statement. They're joining a long tradition of waving them alongside songs of victory at Israel's triumphant leaders. That's what happened 170 years earlier. If you know your history, Simon the Maccabean led a revolt to overthrow the, the Syrian occupation of Jerusalem, and the people lined the streets, and they sang and they waved their their uh, their hands. A thousand years earlier than that, the people sang about David's victories, recognizing him from the beginning as their true king, even while Saul clung to power with his fingernails. At the end of King David's reign, we see a story that we're supposed to be reminded of when we see what happens here at the triumphal entry it's a prelude to what jesus does here and it's really a commentary on human power and how we interact While david lies on his deathbed religious and political leaders within israel are meeting in the shadows jesus Still smelling of his anointing at Bethany is not the only one who has the powers of the world working against God and his plans. They've been doing it forever. In fact, I would say it's part of our human nature. Our fallen human nature. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. When we see Jesus anointed at Bethany, we should actually expect this. The people will be plotting to kill him. A coup was brewing in David's day. David had appointed God's chosen successor in Solomon, but Adonijah, one of David's other sons, has agreed this plan with Israel's most powerful military leader, Joab, and its most senior religious leader, Abiathar. They even crowned Adonijah in secret. While David is on his deathbed. But these religious and political powers were fakes, pretenders, trying to play games and figure out how they could stay in power and undermine the promises of God to David. To Israel and the world. But here's the lesson. We can plan all we like. To do things our own way instead of God's way. But in the end. No matter how powerful the people scheming against him are. They will fail. Because God is sovereign. The consequences would have been serious. God's covenant promises to David are under threat. Is it one from David's line that he has blessed not going to be appointed the next king. When David heard about what was going on, he sends for his royal mule, half donkey, half horse. And he instructs Solomon to parade into Jerusalem, down from the Gihon Spring through the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem. God's people hear of what's going on and they come out to shout and to cheer and to sing as Solomon writes in. As Passover approaches for Jesus, the religious phonies, peddling power and authority in Jerusalem are making plans again. Sadducees, Pharisees and Other religious elites join forces, even though they really don't like one another, by the way, against their common enemy. How ironic that these religious elites are making an enemy of God himself. When the crowds begin to hear that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they grab hold of these pans. And when they see the donkey, they would know. He is the promised king. Promised to the prophet Zechariah. You can imagine them turning to each other. You remember this from Torah class? Do you? Do you remember to? I mean, Zechariah. Do you remember? The prophet? This is it. It says, do you remember what it says? Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout. Daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it goes on to say, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Ah, <sighs> Someone in the crowd is singing. I recognise it. Do you recognise it? Yeah, it's that victory song. It's that salvation song. We know it is Psalm 118. And they join in. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They rejoice. These Galileans and the others who have believed through the resurrection miracle of Bethany are bowing to the king, laying out their version of a red carpet, declaring him as their king and their savior. What is clear, however, from verse 16, is that the disciples and the rest of the palm-waving enthusiasts do not realize how Jesus will accomplish salvation, victory, and a new kingdom. I mean, he's riding in in a humble donkey. How are the Roman military going to be defeated? How are the religious elites going to just weigh down their power? I'm not sure this is going to work, Jesus. How can he come without the troops, without the power, and it end up victorious? That's ridiculous. If this was all brand new to you, you might think, well, hold on. You didn't read out verse 7 Zechariah. In that passage, it says that he's going to gather chariots and war horses. <laughs> so, maybe he lulls the Roman troops and the religious elites into a false sense of security. And then, over the hill like a brave heart, they come charging in, and then they defeat the Roman soldiers. It's good thinking. That must be it. No. Zechariah's prophecy helps. Your king comes to you, not just victorious, righteous, and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. His humble obedience is the righteousness of man that we all need. And it's how he will become victorious. Let me explain. Jesus' whole life on earth was a humiliation out of love. He willingly puts aside his eternal glory to do the will of his Father. He described his mission that way again and again, didn't he? He talked about how he only does the will of his father. uh, Chapter 5, verse 19 is probably the clearest. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Victory is going to come by humility. And true humility is not a lack of confidence and to put yourself down. It is to see yourself as you truly are, to have a sober assessment of who you are and who God is. And it leads to obedience to God. That's true humility. To trust in the plan of God no matter the consequences. In less than a week, Jesus will be sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and yet still willing to do the will of his Father. He will be willing to make the final part of his journey to the cross. 19th century theologian Harmon bavink described Jesus' mission from heaven to earth as a deed of condescending goodness. Jesus wins because he possessed a weapon no one else has ever had perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. But what can his righteousness do for us? Great, he's perfect, but I'm still stuck over here in the muck of my failures and my sin. What do I do with that? Just compare my wretchedness to his righteousness? My failings to his perfection? Being around perfection is exhausting. Just reveals all our imperfections. I could not think of a good illustration for this. But it might be, a, you might get a little taste of this. If you go to McDonald's and you go with someone who orders a salad. You can get them at McDonald's. And then orders the food. Well, you're scoffing what McDonald's is designed for. You're getting stuck into the Big Macs and the chips and everything else. Suddenly you don't enjoy it. I don't want to be here. You're aware of your feelings. I told you it wasn't a very illustration. <laughs> Perfection to someone who knows they don't measure up actually leads you away from them, not towards them. It causes you to repel. I don't want to be with someone like that. This makes me feel rubbish. But at his coronation, he does something that turns it all around. That should cause us to not repel, but run to him. And he does it through the very people who are scheming to kill him. In verse 19 we see it again. They want to get rid of him, defeat him. It's not working. And they think back to that conversation they had before. And this plan led by Caiaphas to get rid of him. Servants did not appear at Jesus' coronation to adorn him in jewels and golden orbs. They did not place a crown gently on his head, careful to protect his skin with animal furs between his head and the metals. He was not crowned on a golden throne. He didn't know it, but he was there by the will of God's eternal plan to serve the sinners who were crucifying him. To reverse their hatred for him too often. Their sinful nature had been so offended by the righteousness of this man that they pushed a crown of thorns deep into his skull. Not realising that he was carrying the curse that brought those thorns into the world in Genesis 3. They hammered nails into his hands and feet Not realising that the blood spilling out is for the forgiveness of their sin. Even this sin. They mocked him and put a sign up saying King of the Jews. Not realising that he was restoring their honour as he was shamed. This is where the donkey from Zechariah's prophecy was going to lead. To a substitution of his holiness for our sin. His obedience for our disobedience. But why? Why did he do it? God did not need this. Jesus did not need this. God was eternally happy in himself. He did not lack anything. He is love. And entirely satisfied in himself as father, son and spirit in eternity past. In the glories of heaven. So, why come? Why be humiliated from your birth in the stable through your whole life? To the ultimate humiliation at the cross. Naked and shamed and hung on our behalf. Why? He was not insecure about being king without our affirmation. He didn't need to prove he was king. He did it because he loved you so much that he could not help but come to establish a kingdom, a new kingdom where you you would be restored to be the fullest version of yourself and reign with him forever. That was always his plan. And we saw in his covenant promises throughout scripture that that plan was unbreakable. Promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, as we saw, and to the people of God who would bless all peoples everywhere. Promises rooted in the compassion and the love of God. Because God is love, he came. Even though he was satisfied in himself, he could not help but see you and think, I love you so much, I must come. There is no way he could not come because he is love. He loves you, and he has made a promise to you that will never, ever fail. Jesus goes through this dreadful humiliation because of his love, because of his promises to you that will never end and never fail. Zechariah's prophecy goes on to say, verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. The donkey riding king. Came to shed his blood. To set you free. And bring you new life. As the people wave their palms. And sing to their king. They do not realise that this king. Is parading towards a crowning of thorns. On their behalf. This is not Operation Golden. Orb; it's more like Operation Thorny crown. It's a coronation, not for his own reign, but so so that we might reign with him in a new kingdom. And according to Zechariah, this kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. Do you remember the story of how Jesus called Nathaniel to be his disciple? Way back in chapter 1. He was sat under a tree. And what blew Nathaniel away about Jesus. And caused him to be the first person in John. To declare Jesus as this. Blessed as the king of Israel. Same words used here. Was that Jesus saw him. And knew him. And understood him. Even before he had met him. That is the essence of what we need to understand about Jesus' parade into Jerusalem that day. And that the tribes didn't get. That the disciples certainly didn't get. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey that day because he sees you and he sees your need for him. And he, he has seen your need and known your heart since before the beginning of the world. Wherever you're at right now, he sees you. He sees your heart. And you might think, I don't want him to see my heart. (laughs) No. You want him to see your heart. You know why? Because he's gifting you his righteousness. That's why he's come. He sees your heart and that's why he's come. He sees you in your sin and he has come close because you're in your sin. Your sin didn't repel him away. It caused him to draw close and to come and to die for you. He sees you before the beginning of the world just like he knew Nathaniel under the tree. He knew you. He knew everything you needed. And he's provided it all. He sees you and through the cross he wins peace for your soul in a new and better kingdom. Maybe you're someone who feels like your soul is a tossing wave You're getting battered about. You're up and you're down. You're all over the place. Receive the peace of Jesus. It's yours. It's a gift to you. Receive his peace. Be at ease, not because you need to be anything, not because you need to prove anything. Not because you're feeling like you need to be somewhere else than you are. But because he sees where you are and he gives you his peace by dying for you. By taking on the chaos in your heart and everything that's caused it, both by you and by others. And he substitutes it for his peace. So, what must you do to receive the invitation to enter this kingdom of his, the kingdom of God? Jesus answered Nicodemus back in chapter 3 like this. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that we now need to die to ourselves. So that we might be with Christ and raised with him in his resurrection into a new kingdom, teeming with new life. In other words, we require just one thing. Humble faith. The kind of humility that leads to repentance. To say, I'm saying goodbye to my old life. And I'm saying yes to my new life in Christ. Where I actually discover who I truly am. Because I'm made by him and for him. And I receive his righteousness. And get to walk in his ways. And it's the same kind of humility that we've seen in Jesus. Living in obedience to his father. Even to the cross. But let me make something very clear. It's his obedience that saves you. It's his obedience that you have faith in. So your humility is simply to recognize where you are. And by the way, that is lost in sin if you haven't put your faith in him yet. That's the sober reality of humility for us but it is also to recognise how God views you in Christ. So if you put your faith in him, now you're declared righteous and you get to walk in a new, new way of life, in a new kingdom, in the freedom and the joy and the wonder of knowing God, being loved by God, walking with God. She should cause us be like those who come with these palm leaves and sing it should cause us to confess Lord I need you, save me, Hosanna in the highest, save me blessed is the king of Israel, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord I love how the Christian psychologist David Benner puts it genuine self knowledge begins by looking at God and noticing how God is looking at us Do you see that? It's not just looking in and having a self-assessment and going, oh, yeah, this isn't great. I wish I had more. It's also looking up to God and realizing that he has done it all for you. And he has it all for you. And now that you've put your faith in him, he sees you as in Christ, righteous, holy, a saint. That's who you are now. That's your new identity. for your faith in Jesus. No matter how this week went for you. No matter how crazy your life might feel. No matter how out of control it is. Jesus has a hold of you. And you are righteous in him. Our humble king has come to save us by humiliation. Operation Thorny Crown. And it ended with him being raised in victory through death. And we know he has a victory for he rose again. He has championed over death. And now, because he is championed over death, because he's been the firstborn from among the dead, and we now have been raised with him, not just dying with him, but raising with him, now we get to be agents of peace. People who have received shalom, fullness in God. And work now to bring the peace of God to the world. And we do it by humbly following Jesus in our weakness. Someone described it as cruciform in shape. Shaped like the crucifixion. Where victory comes not by shows of strength, but God's miraculous power in our ordinary weakness. Isn't that good news? You may feel weak, but God in his strength works through you to bring his kingdom power and his peace to the world. The pattern is the same for us. The more we lay ourselves down, the more we will see God bring victory in our lives and the lives of those around us. The more we enjoy the peace of Christ's wonderful kingdom. That's why we plant Glasgow Grace For God's glory and Glasgow's good we've got our heads around What, what does that really mean? it means that as we lay ourselves down weak as we are God in his power works through us to bring goodness to the city and that's why we want to see more churches planted more grace communities planted that's why we want to see multiplication in everything that we do It's why we want to see God's kingdom advance in this city and in Scotland and across Europe. It's why we want to have a big vision for what God wants to do. Not because we are great, but because (laughs) miraculously, in his power, just like the death of Christ, where victory comes through weakness, we can see victory after victory in the power of God as we lay ourselves down. And that's our role. One day he will return in all his glory to finally and fully establish his kingdom. And this time he will come in mighty power when he returns. That's part two of the prophecy. That's the symbolism of the chariots and the war horses. We don't just dismiss them. That's coming. But it's not how he had the victory. He's already won by death on a Roman cross. That's the love of God. That's the plan of God. That's in the very heart of this thing. We keep coming back to the cross. And week by week we will do that at Glasgow Grace. Keep coming back to the cross. In Jesus we have every reason to rejoice. That's how that prophecy begins. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly. His humility has led to victory and the establishment of peace. That is reason for rejoicing. So let me finish. With the vision of worship John gives us in Revelation 7, where all of this ends up, by the way, this is where it's going. We're we're on that journey. We're going towards this. When even Palestine will enjoy a peace of God. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. That means they were righteous. They're righteous. And that will be you. And were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As much as they might try to pull down God's anointed, Jesus has won and the blood of his covenant is sure. We are safe in the saving arms of God.